Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Before today's episode, I want to apologize for being rather late. It wasn't intended, but basically there was just a bunch of stuff going on, not all of it planned, and unfortunately, the episode slipped. However, today we are going to talk about cavalry in the Civil War. This episode is done a little bit differently. This is an extemporaneous episode, and although it is impromptu, I do have my show notes and outline here. So it's a little bit different, but as we go along, we'll see how we do. The role of cavalry in the Civil War raises a bunch of interesting questions because of the Civil War's role as the first truly modern war, one defined by, well, iron and steam as much as muscle and manpower. And yet, As late as World War II, armies were, well, being supplied primarily by horse. That's not a joke or an exaggeration. As late as World War II, the German army was dependent on horse-drawn wagons to supply its armies. But even so, it often seems a little strange to think of the role of the cavalry in a giant modern war such as the Civil War. What, after all, were all those horseback warriors doing? Well, right away, we can basically say that they were not, in fact, fighting on horseback. Now, sometimes they did, and we'll get into that. But principally, cavalry did not fight at all. That was not their primary role in the Civil War. Now, we will again discuss how they fought and in what ways. And the answer may surprise you. But what changed is that they went from a tactical weapon to a strategic tool. In the Napoleonic warfare, the cavalry were part of the three-weapon system, infantry, artillery, and cavalry. Each one would be used tactically against one of the others on the battlefield. This was not, however, a case of rock-paper-scissors. Rather, infantry had to adopt specific anti-cavalry formations in order to ward off attack by cavalrymen. But those formations were ineffective against either artillery or other infantry. A general would ideally use these three weapon systems together to defeat or destroy an enemy in some fashion, whatever worked. But the times they were a-changing. The same developments in technology that made the rifle so much deadlier than the musket also affected the abilities of cavalry to fight on the battlefield. The advantages in range and firepower offered by the rifle, including its use with the mini-ball, also made infantry weapons much more dangerous against cavalry. Because of this, cavalry now had to increasingly keep their distance from infantry. In the past, well-organized and disciplined infantry could in fact counter cavalry very quickly. However, now even scattered infantry could often put up a withering volume of fire from a much greater distance. Now, unfortunately for the cavalrymen, while their weapons did improve, they did not improve by nearly as much. So let us dive a little bit deeper into the world of the cavalry and explore what they were doing. First, we have three main elements of the cavalry. Horses, weapons, and soldiers. Each of these had their own impact on operations and their own complications. Now, I'm going to pretty much walk past the soldiers here. Cavalrymen are just soldiers like any other in theory. Now, in practice, 
there were a few difficulties. It took time to train up a cavalryman. Often it was reckoned that it took two years before they were completely ready and steady in the saddle. On the upside, the cavalry did have to do a lot of their own work as far as maintaining and taking care of their mounts. But these kinds of skills would have been reasonably common. Not universal, but reasonably common. Because they weren't that different from the skills necessary to work with horses on farms. If you'll think back to our episode on Ulysses S. Grant, you'll remember that he became an exceptional horseman basically just by working with horses day to day for years as a boy. Of course, he was an exceptional example, uh, well known in his local area for his unusual talents. But many men had skill from practical day-to-day experience with horses. That said, they did not necessarily have quite all of the skills for cavalry operations. That took quite a bit more. Uh, Many farmers, for example, might not actually be very good at riding horses because they didn't ride horses. They used them to plow. They used them to haul wagons. Having a horse to ride was a little bit of a luxury. Even if they were good in the saddle, I'm afraid that you had to consider that cavalrymen might have to stay in that saddle for hours upon hours upon hours. And frankly, it was a rare man who could do that. That is tiring work. So, ultimately, cavalry had to develop their skills by hard training like any other soldier. It didn't come naturally to most. But they also had to learn how to fight atop horseback, and that was actually a lot more difficult than you could imagine. Now, specifically, when we talk about fighting on horseback, we're getting into that second aspect here, weaponry. And this gets rather complicated, partly because the cavalry, more so than any other arm, had a complete riot of equipment. Men went into battle with sabers, pistols, revolvers, and remember that the revolver was rather new, so revolver and pistol could actually be different things. Shotguns, rifles, carbines, which are basically long-barreled guns, but usually firing a lighter round, such as a pistol round, and eventually modern repeating rifles. And many of these units were, shall we say, charitably non-standardized, particularly on the Confederate side. This does not mean that they were ineffective, but as we discussed a moment ago, most of these weapons were, charitably, not very good in the range department. Uh, quite often, they could only cut down men at 200 yards, whereas the average infantryman could hit a target at 400. And frankly, at something as big as a horse, you could go even farther. This meant that while the cavalry could produce a fair amount of short-range firepower, getting them into range was a virtual impossibility against infantry, and often very, very dangerous against artillery. Hence, over time, their role got pushed back to the margins of the battle, the fringes, the edge. But, of course, this actually gave them their own power. That is why cavalry-on-cavalry engagements became, well, pretty much a daily occurrence in the Civil War. Now, we are going to come back to the topic of weaponry here in a moment, because we're going to talk about the different types of cavalry, because, yeah, there are different types. However, let's look briefly at the third component of the cavalry, the horses. This is a very well-kept secret, not everybody knows, but horses are big, and I'm sure that's the exact kind of deep investigation you want from this podcast. Uh, But in all seriousness, yes, horses are big animals. 
They frequently weigh a half ton, and they eat a lot. To some degree, if there weren't a lot of operations going on and you were in the spring or summer, mid-early fall, you could forage them on pasture land, assuming that you could find any pasture land. That was certainly not always available. But quite often, you had to bring in oats, grain, or something else for them to eat. And they were going to eat a lot. So that put a big stress on your supply lines. The food didn't have to be high quality, of course. The horses generally don't complain that much about it. But it did have to be there. And, of course, the cavalry often range well outside and away from the camp or centralized depots, which adds additional complexities. But let's not forget the horses themselves. There are a lot of horse breeds. They range from giant Clydesdales to much leaner and quicker, more agile breeds, such as the Morgan. Generally speaking, a cavalryman needed a kind of steed that was intelligent enough to take training and work with him, but also had to be calm enough to, well, accept the sounds, the crash, the bullets flying back and forth across in the middle of a fight. Quite frankly, horses have to be trained in order to stand up to the shock of combat, just like people do. And, well, not all of them can. Some breeds hold up better than others, however. Still, though, acquiring all those horses was, well, expensive. Frankly, equipping an entire cavalry regiment could cost $300,000, and frankly, most of that came from the horses. Even a very well-equipped infantry regiment would probably not exceed 60000 and that's with, like, tailored uniforms and everything. One of the major advantages for the Confederacy in the early war period is that their cavalrymen often brought fine steeds from home. These were horses that were used to racing, that had often been accustomed to gunfire because they were used in hunting sports, and therefore they were good, very good, cavalry steeds. If you can read between the lines, this may also suggest to you that the average Confederate cavalryman came from much higher social class, was probably very well motivated to fight on behalf of maintaining the slave empire, and would be extremely enthusiastic in combat as compared to the average northern cavalryman. Again, on average. But of course, that average northern cavalryman would be less experienced in the saddle. They didn't have all of that experience. They probably never had a steed just to go hunting with. The steeds they did have were not going to be as good horses on average for the purpose. Um, there just weren't enough of them to go around. And, of course, a man who had been used to hunting from horseback is probably going to be a lot better at shooting from horseback, will know how to reload from horseback. It's not that they won't have to polish and perfect some of those skills in the course of the war, but they would be coming into it with a notable advantage from the outset. If you put all of these together, the Union really only had an advantage in cavalry in two areas. First, Union cavalry would have somewhat better armaments. Not universally, and in this area, unfortunately, the superiority of armament, even in the earlier war period, meant a lot less. Quite frankly, it, it just didn't matter as much for the cavalrymen because they weren't necessarily defined by their firepower. And second, they did have numbers. Uh, even by the end of 1861, the Union had thrown in something like 50 cavalry regiments, which is an astounding outlay of resources if you think about everything that's involved in that. As we will see, 
Unfortunately, the Union also somewhat let them down, at least in the Eastern armies, in their military organization. However, before we get into that, let's look at the three forms that cavalry could take. First, we have cavalrymen. Now, I know we've been talking about cavalry, but technically, cavalry are only soldiers who fight from horseback. They are cavaliers, knights, chevaliers, equites, or whatever else you want to call them. In any age, they're the guys who get up on horseback and fight from it. This provides them with a number of advantages. They are literally lifted up above the rest. They can use the power of their steeds to deliver blows that are much stronger than those of an ordinary soldier on foot. But their primary power has always been the ability to control an engagement. They can attack when and where they want to, and they can escape if they need to. And yet there has always been an element too, as John Steinbeck put it, a man on a horse is spiritually as well as physically bigger than a man on foot. The iconic Civil War cavalryman usually has a rather fancy uniform, rides around on a pretty well-muscled horse, generally speaking has a saber, probably a revolver, probably a carbine or a shotgun, and he goes in for glorious charges. Some of that is at least rather true. Quite often, the cavalrymen would put on their best uniforms for parades, but in the field, they were often just as ratty as any other soldier. They wouldn't be doing any charges on the battlefield because that was a terrible idea. They could and did carry out cavalry charges against enemy horsemen if they saw them and if the situation was suitable. In the pre-war army, there were two regiments of cavalry. In fact, both Robert E. Lee and Joe Johnston served in them and a rather large proportion of the officers went south, which of course only added to the early war superiority of the Confederate horsemen. A second form of cavalry organization are the dragoons. Now, in theory, the dragoons were originally mounted infantry. They kept armor in use until long after most troops had dropped it, but of course that too had ceased long since the Civil War. The United States had two regiments of dragoons in the pre-war army. In practice, however, the dragoon was simply an outmoded organization and was no longer necessary. There really was no difference between how they fought and how the cavalry fought. It was just around for, well, military tradition. In the Civil War, we do not really speak of having any dragoons, but there actually were units that carried out the role of dragoons. And those were our third form of organization, the Mounted Rifles. There was one regiment of Mounted Rifles in the pre-war army, but they became much, much more important during the Civil War. However, lest you get lured into some amount of confusion on this, one thing to understand is that just because a unit was called cavalry, they may really have been acting as Mounted Rifles. Simply put, those guys were exactly what it said on the tin. They rode horses, got into a position as soon as possible, and then basically dug in to assist the infantry, often holding a critical pass or line in an area that the rest of the army had to catch up to. This form of organization was peculiar to the Union, and in particular in the Western armies, became extraordinarily valuable in 1864 as they became some of the first units to be universally equipped with repeating rifles. 
Although early repeating rifles had some quirks of their own, and they carried a lot less firepower per bullet compared to the ordinary infantry rifle of the day, they did deliver a lot of firepower in a very brief amount of time. And when you slap them on a group of, well, soldiers riding horses, or in some cases mules, they allowed commanders to put a lot of firepower where they needed it, when they needed it. And that's absolutely priceless. That said, they were distinctly a secondary element in the Civil War armies, even just in the cavalry service. There weren't that many units of mounted rifles, and they had to be deployed somewhat carefully. Instead, most of the cavalrymen performed their service every single day as they patrolled around the armies, essentially trying to keep in contact with the enemy, watching roads, and, well, doing the reconnaissance work. This was an absolutely vital element in the Civil War armies. Simply put, an army without cavalry was basically a giant groping around blindly, having no idea what was around it. No matter how many infantry you had, how much firepower you had, how much artillery you had, if you didn't have cavalry, you were basically just flailing around. The infantry often looked down their noses at the cavalrymen, in part because... Well, the cavalrymen didn't necessarily risk their lives on the same bloodbaths as the infantry did. And it probably is true. Casualty rates per units are somewhat difficult to estimate, but more than likely, the infantry did absorb a lot more punishment, not only in battle, but even in camp. Still, though, the cavalrymen didn't necessarily have it easy. They had to be up, out riding, often every day. The infantry, by contrast, frequently had long periods of rest between campaigns. The cavalrymen did not. They had to go up and scout out all the time. That doesn't mean that they never had any chance to rest, just that there was always some useful service they could be doing. And while it's true that the cavalrymen did not have as high a casualty rate, well, the horses did. You can see in just the sheer quantity of horse flesh that the armies ran through that the cavalry served relentlessly. At least twice as many horses died as men in the Civil War, and possibly five times as many. Not all of these were cavalry horses, of course. Horses pulled wagons, they pulled cannons, they carried around officers and messengers. But still, when you add it up, it is a gruesome toll, and cavalrymen bore that burden daily. Besides... As any soldier knows, when a cavalryman is killed, he falls off the horse and thereby immediately joins the infantry. Now this episode can also be viewed as a little bit of a follow-up to our discussion of McClellan and strategy. One of the critical flaws of McClellan was that while he did undertake some scouting himself, one observer recounts seeing McClellan and his whole staff basically up a tree peering out at the Confederate fortifications, he also designed and implemented a cavalry program that was, well, entirely useless for the purpose. McClellan broke up the cavalry organization, and he spread it out entirely among the regiments of the army. This was bad. First, it dispersed the command structure of the cavalry too much, so that they were unable to concentrate and fight their Confederate counterparts. Second, it also removed the ability of the cavalry to coordinate and concentrate intelligence. If one unit saw a band of Confederate soldiers 
identified them and notified their commander. Well, well, that commander was a brigadier who probably had to pass it up and to his commander, who then had to pass it up to his commander, who then had to pass it up to McClellan. This slowed the flow of communication among the units of the army. It is also somewhat suspicious that McClellan went out of his way to prevent the cavalry from adequately scouting, from learning how to do that. The reason this is suspicious is because it allowed him to completely control the flow of information. He was able to block any independent reports, and of course, nothing was going to get past him that he did not want to pass up, either to the War Department or to President Lincoln. But this blinded his army. The result is that the Confederate cavalry literally rode rings around their Union counterparts in the early war period. Now things did change. After 1863, the Confederate cavalry could no longer dominate the situation nearly as they had done. That was the work of hard reforms that, well, took time to implement. And then the cavalrymen had to get some amount of familiarity with the new command structure and with fighting in larger units. In the end, it was done. And in 1864, the Confederate cavalry finally met their match. But it took a lot of work and a lot more blood to accomplish this. Interestingly, the Union had the service of one of the great cavalry reformers of the period, Philip St. George Cook. Now, we've actually encountered Philip St. George Cook before, because you remember that little trip that McClellan took to Europe in order to observe the Crimean War? Well, one of the men with him was Philip St. George Cook. While McClellan came back with a saddle, and it actually was a pretty good saddle, Cook came back with some insight into the developments of the cavalry, and he started thinking about exactly how they could reorganize American cavalry to take advantage of his observations. Of some note is that Cook was a Virginian, but he stayed with his country and not his section or his state. This was doubly interesting because his son, well, went Confederate, and his son-in-law was Jeb Stuart. Stuart vowed that Cook would regret his decision but once, and that would be continually. And apparently, they never spoke again. The two would, however, face each other on the battlefield. Cook left field service in 1862. However, he also promulgated a new cavalry manual before doing so. This became a standard manual for cavalry training, uh, particularly in the West, ironically, much more than the East, where some units insisted on using the older way of doing things. Principally, as most Civil War manuals are, the text details the exact organization and formation of troops in battle. Literally, how they are riding. How many men do you put in a column? How do you basically ride along with the columns? And that kind of thing. It all might seem a little bit tedious and obvious, but, well, it wasn't obvious. This is actually rather difficult to do, especially under battlefield conditions. The primary innovation that Cook details is an emphasis on a single line of battle. The infantry in the Civil War often fought with a double line of battle. It was possible even to do more, but that was rather rare. The point of the double line of battle was to deliver firepower in the direction of the enemy, but also to rush reinforcements into any gaps that resulted when they directed their firepower at you. Or, alternatively, to help carry the day as the second line rushes up 
and thereby adds its weight to an attack at a critical moment. Traditional cavalry tactics, as espoused in the U.S. Army, were somewhat similar. But Cook strongly suggested changing this, because in a cavalry engagement, you needed to bring all of your firepower as fast as possible. So he said, put it into a single line. Get it into action, because you're probably not going to get a second chance. In addition, of course, that second line often just created confusion. They couldn't add the weight of their firepower as often as not, because that risked essentially shooting up their own friends in the back. And when they did join the action, it was often just as that first line had completely broke, because the other guy had thrown everything he had into the fight right away. Rather notably, one of the reasons that the Eastern armies didn't adopt the new model is because both McClellan and Henry Halleck somewhat opposed the changes. Of course, neither of those men had any idea about cavalry fighting, they never did it. Such was the unfortunate life of the Union cavalrymen. Now, one other thing about Philip St. George Cook is that he actually wrote a version of the story of Hugh Glass, one of the first to do so. Hugh Glass was a famous trapper and frontiersman who survived rather extraordinary circumstances, and his adventure got turned into stories, poems, and other things, eventually movies, and most recently, The Revenant. That has absolutely nothing to do with Union Cavalry, I just thought it was really cool. As a coda to today's episode, I want to discuss that the Civil War Cavalry was in many ways the end of an era. Cavalry continued to exist after the Civil War. There are even a few units of cavalry today, sometimes to maintain traditional skills or sometimes for special operations, but not main field service. Cavalry, however, became more vulnerable and less useful every year. Still sometimes used for reconnaissance purposes for decades after the Civil War, but decreasingly able to make themselves felt as a presence. Mechanized warfare did not take over until the 20th century, but even in the late 19th century, the battlefield simply became too dangerous for horses. Artillery increased year by year in killing power and range until they could rain down death from miles away. Infantrymen carried more and deadlier weapons every year, and it might not seem that an individual battle rifle would make a difference, but when you're talking about hundreds of soldiers armed with them, even small improvements carried out consistently made them more and more dangerous. And so ultimately, the horse left the battlefield entirely. This was really all the better for the horses, of course. The cavalrymen actually stayed in place. They kept on fighting. They eventually just picked up new tools. The internal combustion engine created new weapons of war. They created a new opportunity for the cavalry and yet cavalry still. Many of the same goals and methods, the same strategies used in the Civil War stayed in use, even when the horses were now tanks and other armored vehicles. Whether mounted on a Percheron steed or perched atop an M18 Hellcat, the cavalrymen still rode forth to war. They often still served as the eyes and ears of the army. They still prowled, looking for any weak or isolated enemy unit to take prisoner. They still looked for a hole in the enemy lines where they might attack, raid through, and destroy supplies or cut off escape. As it turns out, it was ultimately the cavalryman himself who survived the Civil War. The uniform, steeds, and weapons all changed, but the cavalryman himself did not. 
And even after all this time, the infantrymen are still a little bit annoyed at that guy riding around in a steel bunker with a giant cannon getting all the glory. I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.